0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this week, church family. Hope you're doing well. I hope you had a, a good Thanksgiving. I hope and trust that your uh, heart is full as your belly has been. And uh, and if not, I'm glad you're here because uh, we are entering into the first week of Advent and. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what that term means or or even how that bears weight on the church, the word literally means the Latin term that means coming or arrival. And uh, we use the word Advent in our culture quite a bit, to be honest with you, in terms of the advent of technology. It involves both a looking back and a looking ahead. So we'd look back and remember the advent of... The, the car, the advent of the internet, the advent of whatever technology that came, and then we also anticipate that it's going to continue to evolve with new advents in the days ahead. And that's generally the idea, except in the church world, we are looking biblically at the advent of Jesus Christ. And this season is the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas That's uh, often found in the old school historical liturgical church calendar in which we use and leverage this season to prepare our hearts by looking back uh, at Christ's first advent and when he came in in Bethlehem as that baby and then ultimately went and uh, hung on the cross for us to die for our sins before he resurrected and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in doing so, we train our hearts to look ahead in anticipation of his second advent, his second coming, in which he will come and make all things new. And that's what this season is intended for. And for us here at Northway, we're excited because this year we're going to do something a little different with our sermon series uh, in keeping with Advent. We're actually going to look at six classic Christmas hymns or Advent hymns. And when I say that, let me just clarify I'm not talking about the Elf soundtrack or the Home Alone soundtrack, we're going old school, classic hymns um, that help us and serve to fix our gaze and expectation upon Christ's both first and second advents. And uh, for each one of these hymns that we'll be looking at in this series, we're going to look at both the historical background, like what is the origin of this hymn? How did we get it in the first place? We'll look at the theological and biblical meaning that is, uh, that is foundational in each of these hymns. And then we will ultimately ask the question, why is this hymn worthy of our singing? Not only at Advent, but in all times. We're going to look next week at Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. The week after that, we'll look at Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Then the third week we'll, or after that, we'll look at O Holy Night, Christmas Eve, we'll look at Silent Night, and even on New Year's Day, we're going to look at Joy to the World, which actually isn't a first Advent song. It was actually written as a second Advent song, looking at the future coming of Christ. But this week, we're going to look at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And again, the hope in this is that our affections would be stirred um, and our longing increased for Jesus to come and fulfill his promises to us. And uh, that's our main goal. Secondary goal to that in this series is that uh, we would at least replace Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas with some other songs that, that bring a little bit more weight to us here this, this Christmas season. Now, a little origin. When you think about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's a song we just sang just a minute ago. How many of y'all are somewhat familiar with that song? Uh, when we sang it, you go, yeah, I know that song. Uh, a lot of us in here. Uh, it is actually a really interesting origin to that song that I'm going to guess not many of us realize. Because even as I dove deep into this song, I was just blown away by how this thing has evolved over the years. But originally, uh, this hymn uh, evolved uh, from anywhere from the 6th to 8th century. That long ago. Um, and originally, it wasn't even a hymn. It wasn't even a song. It was Seven Prayers that were prayed in the church in the seven days that were leading up to Christmas. And the nightly vespers, which is the the prayer gatherings that the church would have, and they would gather and they would each night recite uh, each one of these seven prayers, known as the seven great O's, because each one is going to begin with an O. O come, O come is an example of one of them. Uh, It's also known as the great antipons. Antipon in Latin, uh, anti, we know means against or can mean opposite. Uh, Pon, or we would say phone, P-H-O-N, means uh, a sound or a voice. We think about telephone or microphone. And you put these together, and essentially what this is, this is a prayer that is a call and response to the church. So the pastor would bring the call by reciting one of the seven messianic titles of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. These promises that were made hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, about Christ, to come. And then the body, once the body and the congregation heard that call of the promise or title of the Messiah, they would respond by pleading in prayer that the Messiah would once again come and be that very reality of what was promised. And so each night leading up to Christmas would be one of these seven antiphons, And also would it be accompanied originally with a magnificat, the Magnificat, uh, the Prayer of Mary that would be involved with it as well. And um, I want to just briefly look at each of these seven antipons, what they are and how they kind of form into the hymn that we sing. I don't have a central text this week. It's gonna be saturated with text. If you had a text, it would be the entire book of Isaiah is what we're gonna cover here tonight briefly. But let's look at each of these seven antipons for just a moment, can we? So the first one that the church would pray, seven days out for Christmas, they would gather and they would pray this, O Sapientiae, which means wisdom in Latin. O wisdom of God. And this is one of the messianic titles and it's rooted in Isaiah 11 says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This was the promise that in the midst of an upside-down world in which we don't know which way is up, which way is down, in the midst of a a people where everybody's in rebellion to God and everybody does what is right in their own minds and, and in their own thinking, this is a plea that the Messiah would come and embody the full knowledge and the full wisdom of God that would lead us to the way of truth. That was the hope, that was the plead. And the apostle Paul in the New Testament would acknowledge that Jesus Christ was indeed the fulfillment of that promise of wisdom. Colossians chapter two, Paul writes, this Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He would even write to the Corinthians and he would say, for the word of the cross that Jesus died upon, that word of the cross is foolishness, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will know the way of truth. You will know the way of wisdom, of why you're here when he comes. And so the church would pray this antiphon, O sapientiae, O wisdom of God, come and teach us the way of prudence, pleading for wisdom in Christ to come and rule upon the earth and make our way straight. The second night they would gather and they would now uh, proclaim and pray the second antiphon, which was O Adonai. This is the Hebrew term for Lord, O Adonai, Lord of might. He says in Isaiah 33, this is where we see some context here. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And he will save us. And when he comes, this is what his judgment, this is what his righteousness and might will look like. In Isaiah 11, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. It's not like us. No, he's gonna judge with righteousness. And that's how he'll judge the poor and he'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. This is a promise that the same God who provided the law through Moses on Mount Sinai would be the same one that would provide the only one who could fulfill it. The Messiah who would come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. All of us who have transgressed that law, every single one of us who've broken the commands of God, Christ came to fulfill them for us on our behalf. And so Jesus fulfills the law, and in doing so, rescues all of us who have broken it. And again, Paul shows us this is exactly what Jesus came to do and who he was. Galatians chapter three, he wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the church would pray this antiphon, O Adonai, O Lord our God, Lord of might, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm, pleading for the Lord our God to come and redeem us from the curse of the law which we have transgressed. And then on the third night, the church would gather and they would pray the third antiphon, O Radix Jesse. In other words, O root, radix means root or rod can be translated in Latin, of Jesse. And again, its origin is in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and verse 10 that says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. See, Jesse was the father of David, king of Israel, one of the first and mighty kings of Israel, of whom the kingly line would bear forth one who would come later and sit on the throne and rule forever, Jesus Christ. And this promise was about that prophesied Messiah, that out of the stump of Jesse, this dead-looking, cut-down tree that looks like it's done, out of it will come a brand-new shoot, a branch, a rod that will shoot forth and will begin bearing fruit. And that fruit won't just be for the, the Jewish people. That fruit will be for all the nations who are grafted in. And even Jesus himself affirmed that this is who he is to the churches in Revelation when he promised in Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. So the church would pray this antipon, O radix Jesse, O root or rod of Jesse, come and deliver us, delay no longer. And they would plead that that shoot would spring up and would bear fruit on behalf of all the peoples. And so they prayed that Antipon. Then on the fourth day, the church would gather, and they would pray the fourth Antipon. O Clavis David. Clavis means key, key of David. And again, in Isaiah 22, we see, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. This is the promise that when it comes to the Davidic kingdom of God, there is only one key that can open its gates to salvation. And that key is one that none of us possess. None of us have the power within ourselves to open up salvation for ourselves. It must come from the Messiah who holds that key. To all who trust in that Messiah, that gate shall be open. But to all who will rebel against that Messiah, who will not put their trust in that Messiah and his work, then that Messiah has the authority to shut those gates to salvation. And so Jesus himself affirmed that he is that promised keyholder when he told the church at Philadelphia, whom we looked at just a few weeks ago, in Revelation 3 the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And so the church would pray this antiphon: oh, Chloe's David, oh, key of David, come and lead the prisoners out of the prison house, pleading Jesus to come and do what we are powerless to do, to open the way of salvation for us and deliver us from the depths of hell into everlasting life. And then on the fifth day the church would gather again and they would they would recite the fifth antipon, which is O Oriens, O Oriens, which means day spring, or most literally morning star. Think about the term Orient. When you were in ancient times and you were on the sea, how would you orient yourself in navigation? By the stars. That word's derived from morning star. And it's the idea that this light will one day appear in a land that is full of gloom and darkness and bring forth the light of salvation. And we see this in Isaiah 9. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And more explicitly, we see it in Numbers chapter 24. I see him now, or I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. There is a day coming when there will be a new dawning upon the darkness of the earth. And this was a promise specifically for those who are living in northern Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, a place of oppression and harshness and darkness and gloom. And out of that is where the Messiah will first come dawning the new light that will bring salvation to an oppressed people. And Matthew confirms in the New Testament, indeed, Jesus is that light that appeared in Galilee. Matthew chapter 4. Now, when he, that is Jesus, heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory, notice where? Of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. Jesus himself confirmed that he is o Oriens when he says in Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am, yes, the root of the descendant of David, but also the bright morning star. I am the dawning of a new day. And so the church would pray. This Antipon, O Oriens, O Dayspring, O Morning Star, come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness in the shadow of death, pleading for the light of Jesus' salvation to come and overtake the darkness and cast away death's dark shadows. And then the church would gather on the sixth night and they would pray the sixth Antipon, O Rex Gentium, which means literally O King of, of the Gentiles. Later would also be translated, O Desire of the Nations. And again, we see this in Isaiah 9, where for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government And we also see it through the prophet Haggai who assured, thus says the Lord of hosts, there's a day coming where once more, yet in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations, literally the desires of the nations, shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This is a promise that one day all corrupt government will be shut down. That this is the promise that the desire that every one of us has every four years when we step into that voting booth and we put our stamp on a fallible man or woman hoping that they'll be the one to change our estate, oh, there's a day coming when God will send his messianic king to fulfill that desire that you have in that booth. But once and for all, and with perfect righteousness and justice, that King is coming. And Paul reminds us that Jesus is that promised King. When he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And in fact, again, we're told about Jesus in Revelation 19, that when he returns on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the church would pray this antiphon, O Rex Gensium, O King, O desire of nations, come and save the human race which you have formed with clay, pleading for his just and righteous rule to be established and reign forevermore on earth as it is in heaven. And then they would gather on the last night, Christmas Eve, and they would pray and recite this, the seventh antiphon, O Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. We see this in Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is the promise that God would soon come and make his dwelling among his people. That salvation would no longer be just out there, but God would come near. And he would tabernacle among us once again, just as he had done in the beginning in the garden. God would call his home here with us. And we see that this is indeed who Jesus came to be. When the angel of the Lord announced this truth to Joseph, When he said in Matthew chapter one, that your wife Mary shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, who again quotes here, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew translates, God with us. And so the church would pray this antiphon. Oh, Emmanuel, oh, God with us, come and save us. Make your presence among us, O oh Lord, pleading for God to return once again with his rescuing presence. Now, those are the seven antiphons. That were the original seven prayers that were formed from the 6th to the 8th century just as early as 500 years after Jesus the church were praying these prayers and again in early in these early prayers it was a call and response here are the seven messianic titles the seven promises and then the congregation would respond with a pleading for that messiah to come again and fulfill the rest of those promises but here is what makes the Latin terms of these, so beautiful. When you take the order that I just read and you take the first letter of each Latin phrase, sapientiae, Adonai, Radix Jesse, Cliois David, Oriens, Rex Gensium, Emmanuel, S-A-R-C-O-R-E. When you reverse those First letters in reversed order, it forms the Latin phrase, arrow crass, which in Latin means tomorrow I will come. I mean, imagine that moment as you're crying out these prayers all week long. You come to Christmas Eve and your final. Prayer and plead and tears is for, oh, Emmanuel, come, make your dwelling among us. And the last word you hear on Christmas Eve is the word of Christ himself. Tomorrow, I will come on Christmas Day. Man, y'all, Latin don't play around right now. Just drop the mic and walk out right now. Doesn't mess around right here. It's beautiful. It's beautiful how the, these, these words, these prayers encourage the church hundreds and hundreds of years ago and ever since. Now, how do we get to the song that we have today? Well, I'm glad you asked. 11th century, a metrical version appears, but this time only with five antipons. Two have been dropped. One year later, in the, or in the, uh, 100 years later in the 12th century, these five antipons Turned into a Latin hymn entitled "Weni Emmanuel," which means "Come, Emmanuel." And then it's not until 1800s, 1851 to be exact, that a man by the name of J. M. Neal translates those five Latin antiphons into English. And then three years later, in 1854, it first appears in a London hymnal arranged by a man named Thomas Helmore into the version that you and I sing today. Now, again, whatever version you're listening to out there in contemporary streaming platforms, whether you got Nat King Cole, whether you got Phil Wickham, whether you got Stephen Curtis Chapman, SC squared, whether you got, you know, whoever it may be singing these, chances are they're only picking two, maybe three of the original antipons to sing. Um, And it's for that reason, uh, Northway Collective, this past week released, we're writing a version of each one of these songs that we're going to teach through in this Advent series. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we released it this past Friday. It's one of the only versions you're going to find out there that actually has all seven verses, which we just sang earlier. You can pray for Lucy. She's the one that sang it on that recording. She's the one singing today. She'll have gone through, what? What? 42 verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel by the time she's done tonight. But uh, it's a beautiful opportunity for us to recite this in its original context so that our hearts can be drawn to Christ. And so that leads us to the last question. You know, what are we doing with this hymn? Why is it worthy of our singing today? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. First, when we sing each verse of this hymn, we are acknowledging, we are corporately confessing together as the body of Christ that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of those seven promises, those seven messianic titles in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled those and he did so through Christ's first advent. When Jesus came in his incarnation, through his holy life, his death on the cross for our sins, his burial for three days, his resurrection that followed, and then his triumphant ascension to the right hand of God where he's enthroned on high right now, interceding for all of us, his church. We recognize that first advent is when Christ became the fulfillment of those seven promises. He is Emmanuel who ransomed us from captivity of our sin. He is the Lord of might who fulfilled the law of God on our behalf and took its curse for us. He is the rod of Jesse who freed us from Satan's tyranny, who from the depths of hell has saved us so that we have now gained victory over the grave. He is the day spring, the morning star that has dawned a new day for us, who came and dispersed the gloomy clouds of night and took death's dark shadow and put it to flight. He is the key of David, who came and opened wide our heavenly home for us. He is God's wisdom from on high, who ordered all things, uh, far and near and showed us the path by which we should go. He is the desire. He is the king of all nations who has bound us all together in one humanity and as our king of peace has made a way for our sad divisions to cease. And that's why in this hymn, we have on repeat, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice because he has come, and we celebrate that in this hymn. But secondly, contained within this hymn is also the reality that every one of us are aware of that not everything is as it should be yet in the world around us. We are still awaiting Christ's second advent, by which he won't just defeat the penalty and the power of sin, but when he returns, promises to eradicate the very presence of sin once and for all and make all things new for us. And this is the already but not yet tension that we live in of God's kingdom in which we rejoice for what he has done and yet we wait for what he still promises to do. And that's why I think the author of Hebrews got this so right on the money in Hebrews 9.28, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so along with our rejoicing in this hymn, we are also pleading, like Israel of old, that Jesus would come again and be the final fulfillment of all those prophecies and promises. You know, one person described this hymn as sorrowful joy, because that is the already but not yet. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we are sorrowful in this life, and yet as Christians, we are always rejoicing, even in our pain. That's the posture of how this hymn was written for us to sing. That's how the music was arranged for this hymn, that we would feel that kind, of, that kind of lament and that rejoice at the same time. And so what would this hymn speak to you and I who are in this room today? I think a few things. For those of you who are in total confusion about life right now, which you just feel directionless and you don't really know why you're here or what's in front of you, rejoice because the wisdom of God has come in Jesus Christ to make our path straight, to show us the direction to go and he promises to come again. For those of us that are in the throes of post-election governmental despair, rejoice because our true and righteous king has come and he will come again and he will deal with justice and righteousness as it should be. And so we can rejoice for those who are under great oppression and torment right now from the evil one. Rejoice because the rod of Jesse has sprung up. It has come to free you from tyranny and will come one day again and give you the rest that you are longing for. For those who are in the gloom of darkness right now, for those who are reeling from the death and loss of a loved one right now, rejoice because light has come and it will come again. And there's a day when death's dark shadow will be put aside once and for all. For those who are in the bondage of addiction right now, who feel enslaved and who feel like there is no way out, rejoice because your deliverer has come to break free the chains of addiction and enslavement, and he promises to come once again and lead us into the everlasting way for all eternity. For those who who feel completely weak and exhausted right now, trying to earn the favor of God, rejoice because the Lord of might has come and fulfilled the righteous works of the law that you and I have failed at. And he did it for us so we can rest in him. And he promises to come again, to bring us fully into that promised land that God promised through Moses. And finally, for those who find themselves in the pit of loneliness right now, especially in this holiday season, rejoice, because you're not alone. Emmanuel, God is with us through Christ Jesus. His presence is here right now, and he promises one day he'll return bodily in person and will make his kingdom here on earth once and for all. And in the meantime, he will never leave nor forsake us. So let us now sing this hymn together, all seven verses of it confidently, convictionally, passionately is our prayer and confession. And in keeping with Jesus's final words in Revelation 22, when he assures us, surely I am coming soon. To which John replied and we along with him, yes, come Lord Jesus church, would you stand? And let's let, O come, O come, Emmanuel, be our prayer here this evening for the very presence of God to have his way with us. Let's pray and sing this. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.